welcome to the Future Think podcast from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with my colleague, Andrew Maynard, we chat with a variety of experts on and off campus about science, technology, innovation, and policy. This podcast brings you the hallway conversations where we think about our collective future. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. Here we are. This is the fifth of our five-part podcast mini-series for the Disruptive Innovation Festival. So have we disrupted anything over this last two weeks? Well, you know, sleep. We've yes. disrupted our own sleep, I think. Hopefully not the sleep of anybody else. Um, in this fifth episode, we intended to respond to the uh, robust conversation that emerged online mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, around our first four episodes. And we will do that. Um, it's, uh, w- and we'll talk about how robust that was in a few minutes. But, right. I think first, what we can do is recap what are some of the themes that emerged in our first four. For those of you who may not be cataloging our every move with uh, your podcast listening, I think we can review who we talked with and what we talked about. For sure, those just, first just really four. briefly and start yeah. to. to bring out some of those trends in the conversation, which I think were very interesting and important. Right, I think so. So the, we started with uh, responsible research and innovation with right. Eric Fisher. Right. We then talked about risk and the circular economy mm-hmm. with you. Yes. And then we moved to maybe more applied topics of the future of cities with mm-hmm. Thad Miller, and then uh, the future of energy transitions with Clark Miller, no relation to Thad Miller. Mm-hmm. So, what what were our themes? So I, you know, I found the conversations very interesting. Um, discounting mine, of course, it was everybody else oh, that, that I was finding interesting. It was fascinating. Um, but but I, so the first thing is, I you look at these conversations. The the whole concept of the circular economy is a very attractive concept. It is both from the comparing what happens in biology, especially Clark's. Um, comments where he was talking about biology being circular, but you've always got that energy input from outside driving the circle. And it's but and it's lopsided. Right. That the, the circle is not actually a circle. Right. Yeah, right. Yes. We yeah. just tend to sort of conceptualize it as a circle. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think what came out is we've got tremendous potential here to do things differently, mm-hmm. to do things better, to do things disruptively. Um, we're getting there with the technology. There are still some sort of bumps to get over, but conceivably over the next 10, 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. we will have some incredible technological breakthroughs which allow us to get much closer to a circular economy. Yeah. But what came out in a number of those conversations was you can't discount people. Right. People are a large factor in whether this is going to work or not going to work. Mm-hmm. All the way from mm-hmm. thinking about responsible innovation and what we even mean by responsibility, right. all the way through to talking about risk and the, the values that we bring to discussions about risk, because that involves people and what they think is important. Right. And even if we're, when we were looking at, at cities and energy, you've still got to think about the endpoint of 
why are we doing this? What mm -hmm. do people actually want? What does society want out of the things that we do? Well, and I think right in that last sentence, you just highlighted that there are two different scales of people that we need to think about. We right. need to think about people as society, sort of that broader social scale yes. in terms of decision-making at a high level, but we also really critically need to think about people as individuals, as individual behaviors and decision-makers, that, right? That's right, um, because on purely economic terms, if people aren't willing to buy into an idea, and by buy in, I literally mean put Purchase. dollars or money yeah. on the table, uh -huh. um, it's very hard to get traction around that idea. Right, right. I agree with that. I agree with that. And it, one of the things that we talked about in a couple of our conversations was that the whole conceit of the circular economy requires more or less universal buy-in right. by individuals. You can't yeah. have sort of a bit of a circle here and a bit of a circle there. Right. Otherwise, then you just need a line <laughs> right. to connect those two circles, and right. then we're no different than where we started. Right, right. And I think that this can be done, mm -hmm. but it brings it down to sort of getting into that messy area of what's important to people, how they behave, how you encourage certain types of behavior, or actually a better way of looking at that is how you incentivize, mm -hmm. sorry, incentivize certain types of behavior. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what people see as valuable to themselves is also valuable to society globally and the aspirations of the secular economy. Right, and I think one of the things that's so difficult is achieving a change in behavior patterns, right. which is really what's necessary for this to work. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that we really didn't talk about that I, you know, pointed at a couple of times through our conversations but continues to really eat at me is this notion of, again, needing really complete buy-in to achieve this circularity, this circular economy thing, but not everybody is in a socio-demographic position to engage in making choices right. in this way. Right, right. And I, I just wonder, how do you overcome that? So I think the first step is actually being aware of the challenge so we don't make the circular economy a middle-class thing or uh -huh. a, a privileged thing. Uh -huh. um, and that involves thinking about communities where people are on low incomes, sometimes uh -huh. on the poverty line or even below it. Sure. People are having to work two jobs to, to uh -huh. maintain their lifestyle, working 14 to 16 hours a day. Right. Uh, so these, I, and this is actually quite a large part of the demographic, uh -huh. certainly in the US, definitely in, in other economies. Uh -huh. um, and I think we've got to think critically about how these communities both have a voice in mm -hmm. the decisions that are made right. and have ownership in what actually happens when we move towards uh, um, the, the future. Um, so the first step is actually acknowledging that these communities exist and they have a very legitimate voice here. Yes. But also they have very legitimate needs as well which have to be addressed. You can't move to a new approach to sort of the, the global economy that is really geared towards the middle classes or the wealthy mm -hmm. and excludes these people at the margins. It's got to be inclusive. I, that's right. Because even, and I think that we see this over and over, there is, you know, the silent underpinnings of every middle class and privileged class 
movement. Every middle class and privileged class economy is powered by people who don't get a voice. Right. 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 Uh, yeah. yeah. This is hard. It's it it is hard, but I actually I don't think it's as hard as we sometimes make it. And certainly from my experience, you can go to poor communities mm -hmm. and when you start listening to them mm -hmm. and start engaging with them, you can see both their interest in building a better life, not only for themselves, but mm -hmm. the society around them. Mm -hmm. And you can also see tremendous innovation mm -hmm. in how they can see pathways forwards, which mm -hmm. may not be obvious to other people. So now That's you've got right. a community where if you do it in the right way, and especially if you listen, mm -hmm. you've got ways of developing pathways forward that's, uh, that would normally be obscured mm -hmm. from a, either a position of privilege or a, a position of just not engaging with these communities. Right. Well, so two things there, I think, is this notion of listening. And, you know, you and I are going to talk more about this with some of our other colleagues right. uh, more and more and more because we really think it's critically important. And another thing that we all say, you know, you just said it, I've said it, um, we talk about communities other than the community that we perceive ourselves in as them, right? And if we, I always return in the back of my head to my favorite philosopher, Martin Buber, and his, the notion of I and thou, mm -hmm. and not othering others, right? Right, right. And, and I think that that idea is critical to any circular economy ever working. It is. Is not othering others. I, I think you're exactly right. And actually, so I don't go back to my favorite philosopher, but I actually <laughs> go back to sort of my own past and my own family and, mm -hmm. and people that I know and communities that I know sure. um, that are not full of academics, living academic lives, of but course. they're full of people living hard lives and working long hours. Absolutely. I, well, yeah, we share similar <laughs> right, you know, backgrounds right. like that. Right. This, this idea of being an academic is, believe me, I am the black sheep in, <laughs> uh, in my right. family right. on that note. Right. Um, so, so one thing here is, I, we, in fact, two things. One thing is I find in conversations with, with people that sort of don't live the life, the, the professional life that I do, mm -hmm. there is actually an interest and an excitement in doing things that are good for the planet. And I mm -hmm. think it's important not to discount that. Okay. And I think there are actually ways of engaging them. So you look, for instance, at what we've done with simple recycling. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways that's been more successful, in some ways less successful, but we, you've seen behavior changes and attitude changes towards recycling. How do we learn from what's worked well there across all communities, and how do you scale up? Yes. Well, that's a great <laughs> right, question. Right, right, just bookmark that for another podcast. Yes, okay, I'm writing it down. Recycling, we'll get there, okay. And I, you know, I think we can add to that too, the, you know, composting and, that, that, yeah. That's right, yes, and then you extend that out. So something that I do find both interesting and challenging with the circular economy is this notion of ownership. Mm -hmm. um, and especially getting away from this idea of you owning something as opposed to you sharing in something. Mm -hmm. 
um, with with people around you. And I find that hard because there are things that I want to own and mm -hmm. I'm glad that I own. And I suspect everybody is the same with some things. Some things they can sort of, they're, they're meh about and other sure. things they're really passionately involved with. So how do you either change that culture and that set of expectations um, or how do you sort of live with it so you sort of draw those demarcations between what's okay to own uh -huh. and what makes far more sense just to sort of rent or share with a much broader community? Yeah, and, and I know that that it's very straightforward and reasonable to think about that in terms of, of thingness. Yes. But I've just, it occurred to me, I always tell students, right, to own your ideas. <laughs> right. <laughs> what if we started telling students, instead of foregrounding this ownership of thoughts and ideas, what if we foregrounded sharing of thoughts and ideas? And what if that's what we put our sort of academic priority on? Very interesting. So you change the whole language about how we even talk about ownership yeah. versus sharing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Huh. So, okay. so, so the really interesting thing here is I think this is a generational thing, but now you begin to look at the, the, the sharing economy, for instance, right. with uh, Airbnbs mm -hmm. and Ubers mm -hmm. of this world. I think we're actually seeing a cultural shift where it's becoming more acceptable to, to share resources mm -hmm. and gain value from that sharing. Mm -hmm. So I wonder whether, uh, with a bit of nudging in a generation's time, whether this will be far more acceptable still. Right, I mean, I, I hope that our kids in a generation listen back to this and say, oh, how quaint they were talking about owning a dishwasher, right? right? right. <laughs> they were so old fashioned then right. and we still know everything. Right, yes. right. Which, I mean, if we asked them today, they would say that, of course, I think. Of course. <laughs> well, speaking of sharing, one of the things that we endeavored to do with this uh, mini-series for the uh, Disruptive Innovation Festival was sharing the platform of ideas with the DIF 2016 uh, community through commenting right. on uh, the various links where our podcasts have been placed. And we were absolutely delighted that RJ Wilkinson participated um, as a, a public of one, right? <laughs> right. So, so let's not beat about the bush here. Um, like almost every other social media enterprise, I think mm -hmm. our ratio of comments to interest was about a thousand to one or so, maybe a little bit less than that. Yeah, but a little bit. It's, but it's hard to get people engaged. It is hard to get people engaged. And I think that there's a whole series of conversations that one could have about why is it hard to get people engaged. Which is not to say that we are not delighted for, as we call it in my house, earballs um, to right. you know be engaging with rather than fingers typing necessarily. Um, so which means if you're really, listening, please engage. Please engage <laughs> and please continue listening. And if you're the kind of person like I am, frankly, uh, who I engage a lot by listening to ideas without necessarily typing my own ideas back at people so so that's fine that's great it doesn't make for maybe as inclusive a conversation which is what it is um, but let's talk about what RJ Wilkinson uh, how RJ Wilkinson engaged with us sure. um, and 
props to RJ Wilkinson for engaging on multiple platforms, <laughs> um, which we were very pleased to see. So thank you very much for that. Um, here's what the comment was, and I will read um, the most expansive of the of the comments. Um, renewables are fast becoming cost competitive with fossil fuel energy for new builds, but how to find new capital? The capital, human effort, and time committed to creating the existing system has been accumulated over decades. Typically, energy transition, water to coal to oil, takes a similar time scale. So. Yeah. How do you react to that? So, so it's it's the problem of we've already got facilities and capabilities there generating electricity from non-renewables. Right. Um, and so how do you make that transition? And this is where we really ought to have had Clark back. Um, mm -hmm. The answer is it's tough. Yeah. It requires a very, very strong economic drive. And we're beginning to see that with uh, the cost of renewables, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but I think partially we need to realize there is going to be this transition period. We can't switch overnight. That's Things right. don't just work that way. Mm -hmm. But also, I think we've we've seen in, in multiple areas that when you get that to that tipping point where both going over to a new way of doing things is economically viable, mm -hmm. it's socially acceptable, mm -hmm. things begin to happen very fast. And maybe we're not quite at that tipping point yet. Maybe we just sort of need, need a little nudge over the top of that sort of little peak and we can then begin to sort of coast down. And that sort of nudge comes from multiple places, I think. It comes from incentives through government policy, whether that's mm -hmm. federal or state policy. Mm -hmm. um, it comes from nudges um, through social acceptability. Mm -hmm. So that's basically sort of changing the culture and the thinking um, through organizations like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation mm -hmm. and, and others. I think just changing the way people think and way they, they, the way they perceive the world. And then it just changes through habits, say sure. with more people buying electric vehicles, more people getting excited about renewables, more people getting solar cells in. Mm -hmm. But I think if we can have multiple nudges to get us over that little peak, we're almost at that point where you're going to see renewables take off. Okay. Now, we certainly see renewables uh, making... Um we see renewables making inroads at different rates in different national settings. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I did notice about our conversations on our podcasts was that we were very... United States focused. Right. Um, and, and I think that everybody is, I think that's reasonable. For <laughs> what, being, being well, no, US no, 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 focused, no. No, I think right? it's reasonable uh, speaking for. Speaking as a Brit here. Yes, yes, no. I think it's reasonable for individuals to immediately have their immediate set of thoughts be relevant to their. Right. In, their individual experience. Yes. Which I think is, is a lesson that. In order to make a change, you, we as a community must be able to communicate with people in ways that are relevant to their individual experiences in order to, you know, elicit that buy-in. Right. Right. But at the same time, I think that we need to also be able to think across national boundaries and across socio-demographic uh, experiences. I, I think we do, yes. And of course the reality is 
the, the balance of renewables to non-renewables is very different in, in different economies. So you, you, you go to France and you've mm -hmm. got that strong emphasis on nuclear, nuclear. which mm -hmm. again is controversial, but it's it's not your standard coal. Right. You go over to Denmark and the very strong emphasis on, on wind power mm -hmm. and, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, so I, I think First of all, it's easy to fall into the trap sitting here in the US thinking that not enough progress is being made. And the, the answer is progress is patchy around the world. It actually may be made um, very substantially in some areas, but it's patchy. Right. And the second thing is, how can you take advantage of lessons from elsewhere to really sort of begin to push things forward? Exactly. Lessons of successes, but also lessons of failures. Yes. We are so, as a, a society, and I mean not just here in the United States, I mean in uh, in universities, in technology, in industry, we are so always chasing the shiny successes and you know the laurel wreaths right and i think that we do well to see where yes look at the patches where successes are happening but also look at the other patches where successes are not accruing right and learn from those i think that's yeah. that's really important and part of that actually and it gets back to the social issue mm -hmm. is understanding the social dynamics yeah. understanding for instance if you're going into west virginia virginia in the the states and mm -hmm. understanding the the coal culture there really understanding what the social barriers are to getting rid of coal-based power and uh -huh. moving over to um, renewables mm -hmm. because that is a major issue if you're trying to push decisions onto a community that impacts their lives their livelihoods everything they know mm -hmm. it's not surprising that there are barriers there so then part of the question becomes how do you over overcome those social constraints and barriers while actually both respecting those communities and those persons and giving them positive options moving forwards that's right that's right so you know, I think that that's a, a pretty reasonable place for us to finish out this yes. mini-series of uh, five uh, episodes of the Future Think podcast. Um, this is not an end, though. The Future Think podcast continues moving forward. Into the future. Into the future. In, um, I'm almost afraid to say, a linear way. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, not entirely linear. We certainly are going to continue to revisit ideas that uh, you know that we've talked about throughout this mini series um, for example uh, Clark has already approached us about doing more about energy and yes. we are going to do more about energy so moving forward in a recursive and reflective way and an interesting and an engaging way we like hope getting so. back to that idea of having really interesting and very candid conversations about things that matter not only to us but to a lot of other people yes and so how do we know what is interesting to other people because right now we're working off of what's interesting to us people can uh, Leave us comments on iTunes and on SoundCloud, and we are also on Stitcher. And people can find us on Twitter at our handle, FutureThinkPod. Yep. So the more comments, the more feedback, the better the podcasts are going to be aligned with what you really want to hear. Exactly. So thank you to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation for including us and ASU's big top, what did we call it? The big top? 
10s. I would, I would say big top 10s, yes. The big top 10 from Arizona State University yes. at the 2016 Disruptive Innovation Festival. And Andrew, thank you for uh, helping me out. My you pleasure, know, Heather. For being my teammate on this journey. Looking forward to future podcasts. All right, thanks. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. The Future Think podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Please subscribe. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and on Twitter at Future Think Pod.